Hey everybody, Nick here again. I know this is two times in a row that I've jumped in before the episode began, but I swear it's for a good reason. What is the reason you may ask? I'll tell you. We got another patron on Patreon, and his name is Lance. Now you may be thinking, that name sounds familiar. And no, we aren't talking about the Elite Four. Lance runs the fabulous podcast, Comic Book Keepers. Over there, him and our other buddy Chris dissect comic book characters. You get everything from their history, reading recommendations, and you may even hear about the character's impact on their lives. But I digress. Longtime listeners will know Lance from the Spider-Man Noir episode we did way back on episode 32 of this show. I even guested on their show once to talk about Nova, one of my favorite Marvel characters, and just a couple of great guys and a great show. So thank you, Lance, for showing us some love here and joining the Patreon. I hope you're enjoying the extra episodes and early releases. And if you, the listener, would like to support us like Lance, please check us out on patreon.com slash none of my friends like comics. It is never expected, but always appreciated. And check out Comic Book Keepers and their Patreon as well. I'll link it in the show notes. And Speaking of links in the show notes, you are about to be introduced to a first-time guest on this show, Sean from The Caption Life. I'll let him introduce himself on the episode, but suffice it to say, The Caption Life is another great comic book show that you should definitely check out if you haven't. It's also going to be linked in the show notes. Now, let's get on with it and talk about our favorite hornhead from the Marvel Universe, Loki. Oh, shit. Wait, who are we talking about? Daredevil, duh. Welcome to None of My Friends Like Comics. This is a podcast where a comic book enthusiast talks to a friend about a piece of work in the medium, and we break it out to see if that friend who's a first-time reader will pull it or drop it. I am your host, Nick Poffenbarger, and my co-host today is Sean from The Caption Life Show. How's it going, Sean? I'm doing good. How you doing? Oh, doing great, man. I'm, I have to say I'm a big fan of your show, and I'm so stoked like to have you here today. I'm especially talking about Daredevil. You're one of the biggest Daredevil fans that I've come across, so I'm uh, I'm, I'm excited, <laughs> you know? And Daredevil's no stranger to the show, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, thank you, and I really enjoy your show. I was really excited to hear that you wanted to have me come on the show and, and talk comics and stuff like that, because I really enjoy listening to you, your show. You're one of the... I, I'm subscribed to, like, I can't remember how many podcasts I've actually officially subscribed to, but I, I listen to a handful regularly, and this is one of them because I really like your show and what you do and everything. So I'm well, really excited to be on here. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate that, man. I'm a, how about um, can you give us the uh, spiel about what the uh, caption life is all about? Yeah, so it is a, I call it a show now because we started out as a podcast, but now I take the podcast and put on YouTube and I do some more like long form content with uh, videos and, and short content as well with on TikTok and stuff like that. But we're a show about comics and pop culture generally. So if it's something related to comics, we'll talk about it. So, um, you know, a the common things that you usually have episodes about would be doing a review about a comic book series, whether it's something that just concluded, something that's ongoing, or something that came out years ago. Um, I'll have guests on the show who are either people that have been involved with comics on some level. Maybe they're a writer or a publisher or an editor or artist or things like that. Or people who um, are doing some really great things that's comics related. So like cosplayers or uh, people who do... I haven't had anybody on the show that has done like makeup yet, but I just went to PopCon um, in Louisville over uh, the weekend. And there is a couple of booths that I saw people doing some really fantastic work with makeup. And some of them were comics, uh, uh, excuse me, comics characters. And, um, and so, you know, just anything that has to do with comics, we'll talk about it. But usually it's about 
Uh, we're doing a review of, of comics. We have people on the show that is related to or involved with the comics industry somehow. Or we do reviews of um, you know comic book TV shows or movies or things like that. We're part of the Comic Watch family, which Comic Watch is a website that's full of volunteers that do regular reviews of comic books, anime, TV, film, things like that. Um, I really like it because it's a great community. And like I said, everybody there is a volunteer, so we don't get paid for it. And we're not a clickbait kind of website that you might see some of the other ones that are like. Um, so it's a really great community. We put out some really great stuff. And so this podcast is officially part of... I, I originally call it a network, but they said like, they don't want to call it a network necessarily, but they want to call it like Comic Watch Family. And they have a few other shows that's part of it as well, too. So this falls under Comic Watch. Yeah, I, I like that idea as well, too, just because um, with it being like primarily focused on like people doing content based on like their hobby, it's like you get nothing but really like just passionate stuff, you know, like like people yeah. who really care, they really care about the stuff they're talking about. And that's always great. And um, I have to piggyback a little bit just uh, talking about your show and whatnot a little bit just to say that, like, I really can't recommend the show or the content enough. Like, I, I really appreciate your like, I, I love your just honesty and genuine enthusiasm for comics. Like it's, it's always Thank nice you. to see, you know? And, um, yeah, I, when I first actually became aware of your show or like really checked it out, because I think we had kind of crossed paths a little bit on Twitter before where like, you know, I just mm -hmm. see like your show tagged and stuff and I was like, Oh, that looks cool. You know, but I, I hadn't, I hadn't checked it out yet. And the thing that actually got me on was, um, uh, I think it was, it might've been two years ago at this point. I don't remember, but, um, uh, you had, you had posted a video response. It was a really short thing about that. Some asshole guy uh, had made a post <laughs> about, um, Superman hugging his son, John Kent in that. Oh, one. It, yes. yes. That whole yeah. thing. And yeah, that for, for those of you who don't know that, that was basically like, there was an image in a Superman comic and John Kent is Superman's son in the comics currently. And um, he's a great character. I've I, we haven't done a book with him in it on this show yet, but I definitely plan mm -hmm. to. It's part of one of my favorite Superman runs of all time is when he's introduced. But, um, mm -hmm. there was this whole thing where like basically some like aggro douche was, uh, making a post about like, you know, like, oh, there's this panel where where they're hugging and and the, yeah. he's saying like he's hugging him too feminine or whatever and all this shit. And it, yeah. was, it was the dumbest fucking thing. <laughs> but like yeah. but but you did a very clear cut, like, you know, concise response to it that I just I really appreciated. And and I was like, I was like, I'm a I'm a fan of, of Sean now. So it's <laughs> like but yeah. <laughs> well thank you. Yeah. And and you know, usually I don't try to respond to those kinds of things too much because I know there's a lot I mean let let's be honest with when it comes to social media, it really thrives on people engaging and one of the things that really gets people going is, you know, a lot of the vitriol and I'm sorry, not vitriol, but you know, the, just a lot of toxicity and, and negativity that's out there and, and, you know, getting people, you know, on a angry soapbox for whatever reason. So I try to kind of put out more like positive things and not engage in some of those uh, discourse. But every once in a while, there's something that comes around. I'm just like, I, I feel like I can't really be silent about it. And I, yeah. I, I don't, even when I do something like that, I try not to do a whole lot of knocking those people down and, you know, treating them like dirt necessarily, you know, just because one, we don't know who's on the other side of the screen and we don't yeah. know everything that's going on with people. And so I try to keep that with the open mind of I don't know these people, so I don't know like what's going on with this stuff. And, you know, sometimes not that I think this was the case, but sometimes, you know, when you read something, it might get misinterpreted or misunderstood. And so um, that one was just I. I remember just saying, like, you know, from my perspective, this is not um, how I would feel about this 
panel as well and said like how, you know, that's how I would hug my son until I die because of our struggles that my wife and I had with having a family. And then we had to go through the adoption round. My son is adopted very much like the story of Superman. And so, you know, Superman is a very special character and story in our family because of that. Because whenever we talk to our son about how he's adopted, we bring up people who are adopted. And I always bring up Superman as being the most prominent one. Yeah. Um, no. And so so it definitely has a different take and special meaning to me. So um, so it's one of the very rare instances where I kind of respond to that. And like I said, even then, I try not to get too negative. But I, I'll be honest, there's every once in a while, I, I do kind of go down that ra- route. And like I'm after I put out that video, I'm like, ah, I probably shouldn't have. Like, for example, um, you know, I, I put out this video a while back that kind of made its rounds on Twitter, which is interesting because I posted on TikTok, but I didn't post it anywhere else. But someone found this video and and downloaded it. And what was really funny is that they scrubbed out my name from the TikTok video and didn't credit me or anything. <laughs> oh, like yeah, that. I remember you talking about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like, you know, I don't care if you don't like tag me or anything, but you went like so far to like remove any sort of identifying like identifying marks to point back to original creator. I'm like, that's a problem. Is when people don't give people credit for the things like that. So the the video that I'm mentioning here is that matt ramos aka soups like a lot of people know him as soups and all that um you know he, he made a video about how he said that you know spider-man homecoming is uh dog shit and i had just did a stitch to a tiktok video of like kind of showing like these instances where he said that superman homecoming is really great and then somebody actually found an episode of his podcast i think back in january so not even too far or too long ago sorry where he had said that he really enjoyed superman or uh spider-man homecoming you know and so yeah. it was just kind of really weird so I don't do those kinds of videos for whatever reason that day. I was like, I feel like I need to respond to this by just kind of doing that. And it was like a snarky video. But like after a day of putting it out, I, I put it on private because I'm like, that's not kind of the vibe I want to put out there and everything. And, and yeah. sure enough, like I said, it started making its round on Twitter. It was like, God dang it. You know, like that's not what I wanted out there. But but no, anyway, I, yeah. So I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and like I said, that, that was a very special video for me personally for a number of reasons. So I'm glad that that uh, touched you and that you really appreciated that as well. It, yeah, I mean, it definitely resonated with me, and I and I definitely echo that feeling. I I don't I don't talk about it too much in terms of this show, but I do mm-hmm. I do like to stay as positive as I can while being like fairly critical of like things, you know. Because um, I mean, perfect example, an episode that we just did um that I just recorded. It'll probably come out before this one, but um, we did um uh, Superman for the man who has everything, the Alan Moore book oh, yeah. with Dave Gibbons, and. Yeah. Honestly, man, like, I don't know if uh, if it's been a while since you've read that, but I had not read that in a really long time. And I was like, kind of, I don't know, I felt like I wasn't in the best mood on that show because like, I just it didn't <laughs> it didn't hold up to me as much as I wanted it to, you know, that type right. of thing. But like, so I was still being objective and like pointing out the great things, but it's like, you know, still being fair, at least, but I don't like to yeah. shit on things, you know, <laughs> or, yeah. or anything like that. You know, it's that's yeah. just not me and not there's enough of that out there. I don't want to put that out. So I like I said, I appreciate you and your show for for not doing that as well too. It's a it's a it's a nice thing, yeah. I think. So <laughs> yeah, well, and I totally get that too because I actually I just did an episode where um, my former co-host um, came on the show and I asked him what comic he wanted to review uh, for Superman Day because Superman Day was just coming around the corner and he suggested Superman Birthright, which I never read before, but yeah, he Mark said Wade that was book. his favorite one. Yeah, it's the Mark Way book and the. Yeah. Um, Lanil Yu, I think I pronounced his name. Yeah, correctly. yeah. Lionel, Lionel Francis Yu. Lionel, yes, thank you. I yeah. always mispronounce that. I oh gosh, I gotta get better about that. But yeah, Lionel Francis Yu. And um, and a lot of people said they really enjoyed that book. Uh, and on the episode, I really enjoyed the writing. I wasn't a fan of the art. And I kind of I, I said my honest feelings about the art um in terms of how 
it looked odd to me and just like, but I try to make it clear that like, this is like my perception of it. I think there's a way to be critical without being a dick about things. Right. Y- oh, exactly. Yeah, you're you're <laughs> so 100% like, right. Yeah. So I think like every time my friend was like, you know, this is what it looks like to me, as opposed to someone say like this art is trash or shit or whatever, you know, like saying that as an objective statement. Yeah. Offering like, no th- criticism, you know, really. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No criticism or just saying like trying to make it seem like it's an objective statement when it really isn't. And that's why I make it clear, like, you know, this is how it appears to me. And I and I have said multiple times, I know a lot of people said that, you know, they enjoy this specifically for the art that they really love Lionel use work. And I'm like, that's great. And I don't want to take that away from anybody or anything like that. It just did not connect for me, you know, and and I that's what I try to do with a lot of the reviews I do for the show, but also for Comic Watch is try to frame it as a here's what I didn't like about it. Um, and I can be critical in that sort of capacity to say that here's where I thought was missing the mark. Um, but I always try to frame it as this is still in a subjective thing, right? Because this is a very subjective uh, medium, you know, when you're talking about anything related to this sort of thing. And so trying to kind of keep that in mind of this is subjective and this is something that is my review, my critique of it. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it translates to how everybody's going to view it, you know, so. Exactly. And I mean, and we're talking about, especially a medium like comics, where it's like we're talking about, you know, some would argue more than half of the story, but um, uh, you know, it's at least half uh, is yeah. is literal art, you know. Yes. So it's like art is always subjective, you know, no matter what. But uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. It, well, <laughs> well, that's all to say, Sean. At least just uh, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm like yeah, I said, super you. happy to have you. We do have a bit of a tradition um on the show that if you are a first time co host, I got to ask, what is your experience with comics? And I guess we could just start with uh, where did it start for you? Yeah. So um, anyone who has been following my show knows that I. I'm not shy about talking about this, but the person who introduced me to comics was my uncle. I remember I was like, I think I was like about eight or nine when one day I went over to his house and he was showing me comics because he knew I was really into superheroes like Batman and Superman, you know, X-Men and Spider-Man, all of them hadn't really come to the popular mainframe just yet, at least for me. And so he was showing me all the comic books he had. And I remember picking up um, some of the ones that, they were reprints. They weren't original prints, but the reprint of X-Men number one, the very first one that came out. And I absolutely fell in love with the X-Men and with comics after that moment because it was just really cool to see these stories and to see, you know, all the kinds of um, I mean, I know it was nine, but, you know, you can kind of pick up like some of the metaphors that were coming on and, and things like that of like, you know, some of the parallels that they were making with um, with, um, you know, commentary on civil rights and stuff like that. But it was, you know, that was my introduction to comics was my uncle. And then since then, you know, I've. Um, growing up as a kid, I would either go read his comics or my parents started letting me um, get comics on my own, which growing up, I don't think, you know, we were really aware of like local comic shops. Like maybe my uncle was aware of that, but my family wasn't really into comics except for me. And so um, we didn't really have a regular comic shop we went to. So I can't remember like where I would get my comics, but um, I remember growing up and getting into like middle school or high school, one of the comics that really stood out to me was the death of Superman because that was like a mind blowing fact of like, I didn't realize that Superman could die. Yeah. It's um, like a cultural kind of touchstone at that point. It, yeah. Like, it, I mean, and, and the stories that came after that, I remember, you know, the four Superman that came out after Superman's death. And my favorite one was the man of steel, John Henry irons. And I absolutely love that story. Um, and then, 
after I got into probably late junior high, middle, um, high school, I started getting away from reading comics. I, it's also the time when X-Men and Spider-Man came out. So like, I would go and watch those in the movie theaters because they were really popular. But I got away from reading comics because a lot of people did when they're in high school um, for a number of reasons. And then I got back into it around 2016, I think, when I discovered Marvel Unlimited. Yeah. And just like I fell in love with comics again and reading them and, and all that. And so I started, you know, picking that up. And then that's when I started this podcast with a couple of friends of mine that I met online. And and really the podcast was just kind of a way to be able to talk to comics with other people because I wanted to have that sort of community because I didn't have that community like locally where I was at because I didn't really know anybody who liked reading comics the way I did. I know the uh, feeling. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think <laughs> honestly, if you go to any social media, like that's why people do go to social media to talk about comics because a lot of times we don't have anybody, you know, like close to us that we could talk to. You know, I mean, that's probably why you named your show the way you did. exactly. That's exactly why. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, one of the reasons is that I've been out of the you know comics world for so long that I'm trying to get caught up, and so I want to know like what happened in the story, learning more about the industry itself. So I had no idea about like variant covers until, you know, about four or five years ago when people started talking about that. I was like, I remember at first time I heard about that. I was like, I don't even know what the appeal for variant covers, uh, variant covers are now. And now it's like, you know, I, I'm look on the lookout for variant covers. Be like, oh, is there one I want to get because it's from like my favorite artist or it has, for example, I bought a variant cover of a Marvel Fortnite story that they had come out last year because it had Daredevil and Elektra's Daredevil on the cover of it. They weren't in the story at all. But they're on the cover. I'm like, yeah. I'm a Daredevil fan. I got to get it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Some things you can't resist. Yes, that's, exactly. that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome, though, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, so thank you. This particular episode that we're doing today, the, the book we are doing is called Daredevil Father. And uh, it's because kind of like, you know, I had reached out to you and I was like, we should do, uh, you should come on the show sometime and do something. And uh, I was like, you know, my first thought was Daredevil because like I said, you, you know, from from your show and whatnot, I know you're one of the biggest Daredevil fans that I've like, come across and I'm a Daredevil guy. Mm -hmm. So I was like, we could do a Daredevil story. And uh, <laughs> longtime listeners know that this isn't like, you know, Daredevil's not a stranger to the show or Daredevil like related books, but I figured it'd be cool right. to do one with a fellow fan for once. And uh, I know the show's <laughs> premise is that one of us is a first time reader. And you said this one and I was like, yeah, sure. That'd be fine. I mean, like, you know, it'd still be worth doing, even if we didn't follow that rule, you know, just one time. <laughs> so, right. the, so when we landed on this book, kind of funny story. When Sean suggested this one, I thought that it was a totally different book. I thought that it was. <laughs> oh, that that's it, right. Yeah. I remember you reaching out to me and be like, this is not the book I thought it was. I'm yeah, like, oh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I thought that when, when you said Daredevil Father, I thought, oh, the one where he's a dad? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, the yeah. whole time. And so I was like, I was thinking of Daredevil End of Days, written by Brian Michael Bendis, drawn by Alex Maleev. Uh, mm -hmm. which is a story where he has a bunch of illegitimate children. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and I was like, I've never read this book, Daredevil Father, before. So I was like, I guess we are not breaking rules because I'm the first time reader on this one, I guess. So which is fine. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. So let's get into the, a little bit of facts and background on this book real quick. So Daredevil Father comes to us from Marvel Comics. It's a six issue limited series that premiered with issue one in April of 2004. It did not finish until November of 2006. So those are some mm -hmm. rough delays there for for six. But I mean, I guess Casada was, uh, you know, editor in chief and whatnot. So he was trying to find the time. But uh, uh, like I said, so it's written and drawn by Joe Casada, inked by Danny Mickey, colored by Richard Eisenhoff and lettered by Chris Eliopoulos. Um, I finally pronounced that right because uh, in our live episode we did with Fred Van Lente, he told me how to pronounce it, so that's good. 
Oh, good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, this, this story. Okay. So for a non-spoiler description, this story takes us to a time where there's a record breaking heat wave in New York city. Things are, you know, as crazy as ever for Matt Murdock. He was recently outed as daredevil in the Brian Michael Bendis run, like in a tabloid. And although mm-hmm. he won a lawsuit proving otherwise, a horde of problems kind of crop up to plague our favorite hornhead. Uh, for, for example, Matt and Foggy, they take on a new client who is wanting to sue the local utility company for giving her cancer, but the client's home life, uh, you know, raises some concerning problems. There's also a new superhero team that has cropped up, and even though their intentions seem noble, they spell trouble for Daredevil in this story. Oh, and there's a serial killer loose in the city whose calling card is removing the eyes of their victims. So, yeah, another Tuesday for Daredevil, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but uh, I guess uh, we could get into some uh, first experiences and expectations about the book. But, Sean, uh, do you remember what you expected going into this book uh, back when you first read it? Yeah, so um, I remember I... Never heard the story until I was at a Comic Con. I can't remember if it was it was either C two E two in Chicago or Indiana Comic Con. I feel like it was probably C two E two, but um, I was just you know collecting any kind of trade paperbacks for Daredevil and stories I haven't read yet, and this was one of them. And it just looked really interesting because of one the title, but the art cover uh, for the trade paperback was really interesting because all the covers for each of the issue were very much like this combination of red and black with some white in there for highlights and text and, and things like that. Um, so the cover art really, you know, captured me and then I picked it up and bought in, you know, I wanted to read it. So um, I really went in not knowing anything about the story and I didn't really do any research before it or anything like that. Um, I think I knew at the time, you know, who Joe Quesada was and everything. I didn't know his backstory. I just knew that he was, you know, very prominent Marvel writer and artist and, and was editor in chief and all that, but that was pretty much the extent of it. And so going into it, reading it, I had no intention other than I had a stack of trade paperbacks of Daredevil stories I had. I wanted to get through and, and read and get caught up on stuff like that. And that was you know part of the pile. And uh, I, I, just, I remember the whole pile uh, that I read. This one was probably the top one in terms of one of my favorite ones for the story and everything. Um, there, and there's some really good ones in there, too. I had the Mark Wade collection that was in there. Not, not the entire collection, but the first six issues of when he read it or when he yeah. wrote it. And the um, not the one that you mentioned, but um, a collection of issues from Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maliev. And that one was a really good one as well, too, especially the one where, um, you know, they did kind of like a really interesting artwork take of Kingpin, uh, which mm-hmm. I won't get into that at all um, in case people want to read that. But I mean, there were some really good you know stories I had, but this one in particular, Daredevil Father, was one that I absolutely loved for a number of reasons that we'll probably get into. <laughs> I, I was kind of surprised that I didn't really like upon reading it for the first time recently, um, mm-hmm. I was I was pretty surprised that I never actually heard of this or 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 read it before because right. I was really big into this era of like Daredevil, like the Marvel Knights era of Daredevil uh, mm-hmm. is one of the things that like really got me into comics and Marvel, like, you know, in right. general. And so I thought it was interesting that I was like, why have I never read this or really heard anything about it and um so it was um it was one of those things where i was going into it and i was like well casada's writing it and i don't think that casada's like a bad writer i think it's more just he's kind of hit or miss for me and and that makes sense because he's kind of an artist first type of guy you know so i mean it it makes sense but i was just like i was like weird you know like i I just i I don't know i was very curious to check it out after after you had brought it up and so uh you know like i said and this is a, a great era for marvel in my opinion um Mm-hmm. They were taking a lot of big swings and stuff like that. And like it's uh, it houses like this like 10 year period from like 99 to like 
2008 hosts like some of my all time favorite superhero stories of all time. So I was very right. uh, stoked to check this one out. But yeah, and I guess this was he, the Marvel Knight series too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, spinning out of it because like he, um, right. I don't know if uh, if it was imprinted as Marvel Knights at first because that might have been defunct by the time that they did this, or they were just put, slapping it on everything because like right. it kind of <laughs> like Marvel Marvel Knights just became Marvel at a point because it was so successful, yeah. you know. <laughs> like, yeah. but uh, oh yeah, but I mean, Casada's art is obviously like I mean him being a, a spearhead of Marvel Knights, like that's what made him ascend to editor in chief. Like, I mean, he's he's synonymous with that, you know, his art and and, and writing and whatnot. So it makes sense, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> but uh. But yeah, I mean, uh, with that being said, I guess we could just go ahead and jump on into the story section of the show. This is where we recap the book beat by beat and uh, tell you what we thought as we go. That means full spoilers ahead, everybody. You've been warned. This book starts off with a pretty striking image. Uh, we see Casada's version of a massive, like imposing daredevil atop a building like for a full plate splash and i had to <laughs> i'd have to stop already because like i had to grab my kevin smith trade right off the bat because i was like <laughs> i was like did casada always draw daredevil as like just this wall of a man or is it like a different yeah. approach and i and i came to realize he was definitely letting his like in this book, like he's definitely letting his like more over exaggerated style kind of come through in full force on this one. And I, I kind of dig oh, yeah. it though. It works. <laughs> like, you know, it's like there are some images I guess you could take out of context where you're like, this looks funky. Like, what the hell? But like for the most yeah. part, it, it works, I think, you know, like yeah. for the story I, he's trying to tell. Yeah. And, and, and I agree in that when I first started rereading this again, I was like, oh, I can't, I, I forgot about the artwork. Um, and it, it, it's just like you said, it's funky. But what I will say is that. It is consistent, though, because when you see those funky things, and when I say by funky, I mean, like, it, there's a lot of, like, disproportionate things, right? Like, he yeah. has this huge upper body and then, like, the skinniest legs that you've ever seen, you know? Or yeah. even, like, at, even when it's, like, at different angles, it just looks, like, a little off and I don't, and it could be an art style of what he was doing and all that but i will say that at least it's consistent in terms of there is a reason why he was doing that so it's not that he was doing it for every single panel necessarily yeah um, but that we you know when he's trying to strike a pose of intimidation all that like it was definitely allowing the artwork to try to tell the story as opposed to trying to create a realistic and um consistent panel by panel look for it. it's it's really trying to use the artwork to capture the moment in that panel so I, at first it's a little kind of like ah and and i'll say this is that i was still was not like the biggest fan of the artwork i i wasn't I, I don't hate it necessarily, but it's one of those things where like the style didn't necessarily click for me, but I do appreciate what he was trying to capture in the artwork and what he was trying to do with that. Because by the time I got to the end of the sixth book, I realized what he was doing was that he was really drawing for that moment as opposed to the overall story in that regard, you know? Yeah, it's it's a definite artistic choice. It's not like yes. it's not like he's bad at drawing or something, you know, like it's right. like, it's right. a, it's it's a it's supposed to have like that vibe. And like and by the end, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, like by the sixth issue, it's like you're kind of wrapped up in the story. You don't even really notice you're just like yes. this is how it looks you know like it's like okay like you know and it's it's fine it's just that if you're not used to like casada style and you know i say casada style as in like you know like but all of his books don't even look like this you know like right. I mean, you even exactly. go back to like the asriel like sort of asriel miniseries like from the 90s mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's very 90s casada but like it's it's still like I feel like there's less weird proportion stuff than in this. So it's like for this, right. it's like, you know, he's, he's doing it on purpose. Like, you know, and there's, yeah. there's a point to it. 
mm-hmm. but yeah, so um, uh, basically we instantly we flashback and Matt is giving uh, an inner monologue about growing up with his dad. Um, he recalls mm-hmm. Jack Murdoch's lessons that he passed on lessons about like, you know, not fighting and hitting the books and generally like, you know, studying. So Matt wouldn't end up like him. We've talked about that a lot on this show, especially in uh, the episode we did about man without fear. Jack Murdoch didn't want his son to be like him, not be like a boxer, you know, grow up and be like a smart guy and stuff. So uh, right. Matt's dad, um, though, we find through Matt's monologue here wasn't always so virtuous, though, um, as we see a memory of when Matt caught his dad roughing up a shop owner for protection money one day because he was working for the fixer. The fixer's never named in this book, too, even though there's tons of origin flashbacks. I thought that that was interesting. They always seem to want to, you know, bring up that the fixer was there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, and I think because this was a limited series, it was probably like they didn't want to like everyone knows that origin story. Like, you know, if you've read a Daredevil, you know, origin story, it's it's kind of the same one. But but this series like has a new take on it, but it, it adds to it. It doesn't change it. It just adds to it. Yeah. So, so my guess is that they were just like, we don't have to harp on this. Let's just kind of set the scene here. And I will say when when they're talking about I love the panel. And this was really critical of the story. But I love the panel of Jack holding up the uh, the, the uh, shop owner. Yeah. The butcher yeah. Um, against the wall and, and looking at Matt with the. You know, with the colors are really great because it's like all yellow with the red eyes and everything. Like oh, it's oh, a yeah. very striking image. And I, I absolutely love that one in, in this whole series. And it plays yeah. a big part later on, too. Yeah, it's great. Uh, like uh, and, and right after it, we get this beautiful page of uh, from Matt's perspective as uh, he saved the old blind man from the careening truck, which spilled the radioactive waste that gave Matt his superpower senses, mm-hmm. superhuman senses, superpower senses. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but now, uh, like Sean was saying, uh, these pages that we just uh, described um, as flashbacks are they're constantly reused in the series to punctuate points and give like revelations kind of throughout. Right. They look amazing. Richard Eisenhoff, I think, deserves a lot of credit here because uh, he set the tones and textures with like these painted colors and stuff and yeah like it's just, it looks very much like watercolors yeah yeah it differentiates it from like the rest of the story and it's it's really it does it's, yeah. it's kind of hazy and like it feels like you know like a like a dreamlike flashback it's really cool we see matt jump down across like you know various ledges and buildings and he recounts how hell's kitchen has been quiet lately because he has been like kicking his patrols into overdrive there's like hardly a crime to be seen like you know in hell's kitchen mm-hmm. and Matt jumps down to the street and he enters his dad's old gym. He takes one of his gloves off to feel like an old poster featuring his dad on it. And he thinks to himself, thanks, Pop. Happy Father's Day. And uh, Mm. this entire intro is pretty interesting because there's an element when Matt is reflecting on his dad that I feel we actually kind of rarely get in Daredevil stories where Matt typically, okay, just for context, like he he kind of idolizes his dad and justifies even like his worst behavior, you know, like all the time. And in this he actually kind of gives like a fair and balanced assessment of his dad's choices. Like it feels a bit more realistic and mature of a take than he usually has on his dad. Like, cause he's like, mm-hmm. he's kind of conflicted about like how he feels about it. Like he loves his dad. Yeah. But like, he's like, yeah, my dad wasn't perfect. You know, like that type of thing. Like he's, he's battling with that a little, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting, but we cut to the morning and we see Matt arriving at his law office. Uh, Foggy Nelson, Matt's partner greets him and tells him that uh, they have an appointment waiting. And it's a woman named Maggie Farrell. Mm-hmm. When they go into the office, Maggie is staring at a photo Matt keeps on his desk of him and his father. And she asks why a blind man would keep a photo. And Matt tells her to close her eyes and take a deep breath. And she realizes the photo smells like Old Spice. And Matt says that his dad wore it. And that's how he remembers him. And it's like, right. what a rude question, though, Maggie. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the first thing she said to him. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, like, you know, it's, it's like one of those things like, oh, you know, I'm curious, like, why? but you don't think about like how that comes across right yeah 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 Yeah. i I, I wish it was 
Yeah, like <laughs> I kind of also wish too the fact that they reference Old Spice specifically. I almost wish that it was like the modern day, and she'd respond like, "Hell yeah, bro! Does he use like Wolfthorn or Bear Grease or whatever Old Spice scents are called?" <laughs> Body axe. Yeah, and also yeah. ironically too, the Old Spice thing is really important to the plot. And I swear yes. I didn't bring it up just to make that joke, but yeah. So. Right. Yeah. No. Definitely. Yeah. It definitely plays a lot more later on. Yeah. Yep. So Maggie he uh, sits down with Matt and Foggy and and tells them that she wants to sue the New Jersey Power and Light Company. And Matt does like detect a strange chemical scent on her and realizes as she explains that uh, he smells chemo. And so mm-hmm. the reveal being that Maggie has cancer and it's because of the Power and Light Company's neglect. Um, it's here that Maggie's husband, Sean, enters the office and uh, he complains about getting wrong directions. And he's like extremely tense and like just kind of rude. And he has like this constant air about him that like he's annoyed with everything happening. And in short, so in short, Sean seems like a big old dick. Um, you right. know, at this point. And uh, he does explain that he and Maggie grew up in Hell's Kitchen before moving to the supposedly better place in the suburbs of New Jersey. And that's why they came to Matt, because he's like, you know, the hometown hero who did good and he does right by pupil. And uh, so Maggie, like specifically wanted Matt for representation. They sit with Matt and Foggy for hours going over the details. Turns out uh, the P&L has been uh, illegally dumping chemicals like in their neighborhood, which caused the cancer, presumably. And uh, Sean even describes their plight in greater detail by telling Matt and Foggy that Maggie can't even bear children now because it's specifically ovarian cancer. So, you know, they Mm -hmm. wanted kids or he wanted kids. So they're very upset about that. Uh, But Matt and Foggy said they will make this case a priority, but they will have like, you know, a long fight ahead of them. And Foggy goes to take the couple down to sign some paperwork. But Matt keeps Sean back to ask him a question. And he asks if they've ever met. Sean says no. And that's important to note that uh, Matt smells Old Spice on Sean. Like, right. And that's why he's like, oh, Maggie knows that. OK, all right. So that's how she yeah. knew it was Old Spice. Uh, we then right. get an introduction to a character named Nero. Well, his real name is Nestor Rodriguez. Nero is his public persona name, I guess. Anyway, Nero <laughs> Nero's a guy. Isn't that interesting? Like, like yeah. what kind of an ego you have to have that you can't just go by your actual name. Exactly. You have to create yeah. some sort of persona. Yeah. It's not like, even so, persona, right? Cause like cause like it's still you, but you have to go through a name change. Almost like almost like Prince, right? Like <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is very Prince. But at least that, it makes sense for Prince as a musician. This guy's just a business owner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I feel like that would be like the 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 reference point Casada's making too is probably Prince. That's the what he was thinking. You yeah. Know? Like it's like a, but yeah, so anyway, Nero is this guy who grew up with a dad who was an influential Hispanic activist as well as like a city councilman. Um, and mm-hmm. from a young age, Nero was like this bright kid who seemed to be following in his dad's footsteps. Um, he even started like this uh, neighborhood watch as a young boy to combat the growing crime rates in his neighborhood. But tragedy struck when he was a young teenager. Um, his father, Hector, was found by Daredevil murdered. And the implication mm-hmm. seemingly being that the local gangs were responsible, or at least that's what the, uh, the, the press say. And as a result of this, Nero like takes a public anti-vigilante stance, believing Daredevil to be like, you know, no help because he showed up too late or something, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. kind of his thing with Daredevil. And so he disappeared from the public eye for years before resurfacing as this multi like this multi-industry giant, basically. He he like makes (laughs) cologne, he runs restaurants, he has a clothing line, a record label, and apparently a best-selling solo album. They mentioned that in one (laughs) line, but uh, but we see. But but it's funny how they explained it because like he just shows up with all these things already. Yeah, yeah. Not like slowly build up. It's like he just invaded with, I have these five companies I'm just dropping here. Boom. Yeah, and he's like like he's a at everything yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't know it's crazy but uh, so we see we see nero like you know in the modern day he's he's watching tv and it's like a documentary about himself 
And uh, we yeah. see like he was recently <laughs> presented with like a civic medal and he received this medal with a uh, former mayor Giuliani next to him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. And he's kind of drawn in there, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and Matt Murdoch by his side at the ceremony, which is quite uh-huh. a pair of, of individuals. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, turns- but it makes sense at the yeah. time because like, you know, at that time we were just we we're still, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11 and everything. And Giuliani was like the symbol of of what was going on and everything so it makes sense for them to do that but like today no one would write him in <laughs> no one would write that yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah nero nero uh you know he turns the tv off puts down a newspaper that reads um uh, the headline is a uh, hell's kitchen spotless crime rate continues to fall daredevil cooks crooks good and i'm like that's a j jonah jameson headline if i've ever seen one <laughs> but uh the the issue ends with us cutting to a scene where uh okay so th- this lady is being pleased in bed by an unseen person and she mm-hmm. playfully talks to the person until we see a hand cover her mouth. The person then holds up a knife to her eye and we hear a scream. Now, mm-hmm. that's the end of the first issue. So the second issue yes. opens with some classic news anchor, Frank Miller style exposition. Uh, the anchors we see, <laughs> the anchor, oh God, I got to talk about the anchors a little bit. But the, the anchors right? yes. that we see are named, <laughs> they're named Candy Cotton and Randy for Candy. <laughs> and they are kind of straight up insufferable. I, I, I they yeah. talk, they talk about a recent string of murders happening, including the one that we saw in the issue uh, before it's being done by a serial killer who the daily bugle named Johnny sockets because they uh, removed the eyes of their victims. And right. basically they're, they're like, you know, the heat wave uh, the city is going through, hasn't made anything better. People are like, you know, on edge and the police commissioner even uh, was going as far as to blame the recent crime waves on uh, the heat and daredevil. He's like blaming it on him too. So the two yeah. anchors, uh, they they mention a new superhero team in town before Nero turns the TV, like uh, he turns the volume down. And I totally get what Casada is doing with like these news anchors. Like he's he's making a commentary on sensationalist and like gossipy news because that's how that's they exactly talk. what it is. Yeah, because um, because every issue it gets worse and worse yeah. to the point where like they're making light of these murders and saying like who's going to play Johnny Sockets in the movie that eventually comes out. Yeah, like they're already but it's still like a very a active thing. Yeah. Exactly. So it's yeah. definitely I mean, it's a smart way to kind of like make fun of them with those kind of names and kind of make it ridiculous, but also showing like how ridiculous that is, too. Yeah, it's a really like, good way of doing that. Like, I totally I totally get what he's going for. And I do think it, it sort of succeeds because, I mean, damn, like these anchors are so annoying and like uh, and on the <laughs> that I'm like sick of them, like by the end, you know, but like, uh, oh, no. yeah, <laughs> Nero's assistant. Uh, tells him that a car is waiting for him to go to a club and he he looks around all moody like as an ad for his cologne which is named only plays on the tv we mm-hmm. then cut to matt that same night he's waking up from the heat and uh, he opts to go out on patrol and there's a funny line where he thinks maybe he should get a sensory tank like in the movies <laughs> and i'm like okay Affleck, i wonder what movie that, that was referring to exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh and it as, like just came out when that happened too like <laughs> yeah it was only like uh, just yeah because this it was the same year because it because that movie came out yeah, 2003. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. It's like, so as he, uh, you know, Matt, he goes and he leaps and bounds on the rooftops of New York City. He thinks of like how great of a job he's done lately for Hell's Kitchen and uh, how quiet it is and how he aims to keep it that way. He hears uh, some commotion, like not far away, and goes to check it out. And he finds the police are already there and some criminals are tied up in the street looking like they were left to be found. And mm. Matt hears the police say that the criminals confessed to some new superhero team, like stopping them. 
and they left their name written on the wall santarians uh so mm-hmm. and, and the cops actually it's funny because they say who the hell are the santarians but uh we got to <laughs> see, we cut to seeing another news story splicing together actual images of the event and another johnny sockets uh, murder was committed at a club another woman being the victim and uh we see nero staring as this news is broken very intensely there's like some weird cutting there where it's like you're supposed to see all these things that like you know flashing at the same time but it's like uh it's it and it's just it's pitting all these things like together where you're supposed to kind of mentally start putting together the clues i guess but mm-hmm. uh cutting to a late night meeting matt and foggy have brought in jessica jones to help investigate maggie's case against new jersey power and light and maggie shows up and she's wearing sunglasses but it's like the dead of night and uh, she says uh sean couldn't make it when jessica asks about the sunglasses maggie removes them to show that she has this big old black eye and matt asks to speak with maggie privately after that she says that she ran into a door frame matt can tell that she's lying and he offers to find her help but she interrupts in like kind of an offended tone and she says uh, matt doesn't know her and he doesn't know sean uh, she then tells him to handle her case not her personal life as she kind of just storms out and it's like oh okay well so yep. later that night Duck a nerve <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and, and and it doesn't help that we see later that night maggie and sean have this big old fight at home and she asks him like what is wrong and sean says like you know he's he's going for a walk and apparently he does this a lot and for hours at a time and maggie mm-hmm. yells at him telling sean to uh, not walk uh, not walk out on her and uh, she then accuses him of meeting meeting up with another woman and says that uh, she's like, she can have you, you know, tell her that she can have you and stuff. It's really bad domestic dispute there. And uh, uh, we see that Matt is actually tailing Sean after this uh, as he goes into the city. And he attaches to like the Old Spice scent with the uh, the hint of chemo because he can smell it on Sean as well. And uh, mm-hmm. the issue ends, however, with Matt being blasted by some kind of power as he leaps between two buildings. And Matt falls to the street and is confronted by the group of superpowered people, the Santarians. And Third issue starts right there. Mm-hmm. Daredevil's face to face with the Santarians. Uh, they talk a bunch of shit to him, saying that he's made problems for everyone else. <laughs> Basically, like since Matt has cleaned up Hell's Kitchen, it didn't like stop the crime. It just kind of spread his problems to other parts of the city. Like yeah, the just crooks just out. know. Yeah, they're just like we're just not going to go to that neighborhood. Fine, like right. whatever. You know, and like and but Matt, like you know, he's he's very stirred. Like he he doesn't really give a shit. Like he's saying it's it's not his problem. And like you know, and 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 they have a big old dumb fight. And Daredevil like doesn't have much luck though uh, they kind of beat the hell out of him and leave him knocked out and uh when matt comes <laughs> which, which, to yeah. I, i'm sorry i was just thinking about this like let me let me make a comment about this with daredevil as much as i love daredevil does it strike anyone else odd that spider-man protects new york city which is a huge city <laughs> yeah and daredevil only protects hell's kitchen which is not even like a borough it's you like know, it's six not, blocks. It's not Brooklyn. It's not Manhattan. Yeah, it's like a very small. <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot more. Always like, I wish it, they like spread it out, like at least give them a borough or something like that. But it's just like, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, I always found it as much as I love the character. I always found it odd that he only had that really small section that he protected. <laughs> yeah, he kind of he kind of goes back and forth, too, about like whether or not he cares about protecting other places. You know, it's like Hell's Kitchen yeah. is like that's his bread and butter. But in this story, for example, in this time, at least like and this was like Casada's not like just pulling this out of nowhere. Like this was a thing in like the Bendis run that was ongoing at this point. And like, right. it's like he he's only caring about Hell's Kitchen. Like he's focusing on it, you know, like it's yes. like he like. And I think the idea originally was like he wanted to 
if I remember correctly in the Bendis run, it's like, he's like, I'm going to start here where I grew up and then it's going to spread like that. Type, right. That's like, that was like his mentality. But in this, it's yeah. more just like, I don't care as long as hell's kitchen's <laughs> fine, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. so, but yep. basically, so, you know, after Mac gets knocked out, he, when he comes to, he realizes that he is uh, still around the area where he tracks Sean to. And uh, except that there has been a murder in that exact area. And Matt smells the old spice with the hint of chemo. So, he goes in the direction of Sean, but loses him in the crowd. And with heavy injuries and no, like, you know, perp to pursue, Matt just kind of goes home. And uh, mm-hmm. he wakes up the next morning, calls Foggy to tell him to cancel his appointments for the day. The show on his alarm clock radio tells us that Nero has a ribbon cutting ceremony later that day for a new youth center that he's opening up because he's like a philanthropist as well. Of he holds course. a, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, he, he holds a uh, press conference after cutting the ribbon. And the first reporter that like, you know, is at the conference, asks Nero about his thoughts on the Johnny Socket murders. And he answers well enough, you know, like gives like a, a you know, like oh, we obviously we don't support this and this is uh, terrible and we're leaving it in the hands of the professionals, but I don't like vigilantes or whatever. And uh, but immediately after that, he's like, oh, we don't have any more time. And as he leaves with his assistant, he complains about how the re- reporter questions were supposed to be like vetted and light, not about murders and stuff. And yeah. uh, his assistant is the word he wears. Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And so so he's like, his assistant apologizes saying that like she did her best and Nero responds. He says, I quote, uh, your best, your best wouldn't have been good enough for my father, nor is it good enough for me. I'm trying to bury my past, not dredge it up at every damn press conference. <laughs> but he doesn't fire her. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't fire her. Yeah, it's like, but we cut back to Matt at this point, and he's uh, dreaming about his past. Um, He sees the kids like bullying him at an early age, calling him Daredevil. Uh, he sees his dad rupping up the shopkeeper again. But this time his dad is yelling, uh, don't turn out like me. And the next mm-hmm. page is that image of the old blind man Matt saved saying the same. And it's like really creepy. <laughs> like yes. it's like a horror movie like thing <laughs> like for a yeah. bit but uh he he ends up like you know waking up and from the nightmare and wonders like he's like what are, what is my dad trying to tell me like he's he <laughs> thinks that like you know something is trying to turn the wheels for him but he can't figure it out and uh, so he calls maggie who's having another late night uh dispute with sean and uh, she says it isn't a good time but matt begs to meet her the next day sean gets frustrated and he once again storms out uh, Matt then goes to his library that houses a bunch of samurai looking armor. I love how they just gloss over that. Like they're just yeah. <laughs> like he just walks in. It's this big old library. It's got a bunch of samurai armor in it and shit. It's <laughs> like it's like, yeah, you don't need you don't need to explain that. It's fine. But uh, uh, <laughs> Matt, <laughs> we got to the uh, Santarians actually, and they are on the prowl and uh, they're roaming the streets in like their various like cool guy 90s vehicles, you know, and uh, yeah, all of a sudden, though. They start to get taken out one by one, one even being thrown at the car windshield of one of the others. And uh, when they stop to assess what's going on, they are accosted by Matt on a motorcycle wearing full red and black (laughs) samurai armor. And he holds up a sword towards them and says, Santarian's my ass as the issue ends. And I'm like, what I don't, a great I don't shot. Think it's even, I, I don't think it's even samurai. It, it's like training armor. Yeah, yeah. Has, right? like it has it's like, like the, the got, helmet with the wires across that you see in like, not like fencing, but like, I guess, samurai fighting or whatever that you see. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's so, like, so it's like he's like wearing all this padded stuff because he got his ass kicked last time. Yeah. And so <laughs> apparently this is supposed to be like his little super suit that he was going to wear. Yeah. What a great shot, though. Like, like my inner 90s has been fed by that, by oh, that no. two-page yeah. scratch of just him on a motorcycle with a samurai sword. I was like, yes. All right. so- I'm sure there's by some sort of failed like animated show that was supposed to do that. You know, samurais on bikes, kind of like street yeah. sharks and all that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so issue four starts off with like their big dumb fight. And, and I'm uh, OK, I'm, I'm going to say I'm sorry for skimming over the Santarians, like because you they all have names and powers and shit. And like but honestly, like 
I don't find them very compelling. They're just kind of they all have their own little quirks, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> but yeah. like I, I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> they, they definitely, it definitely seems like so here's the things that, you know, Joe Quesada is Latino himself, right? And yes. Yeah. And, and that's and one and important much, thing is they're all they're all uh, Latino themed, Hispanic themed for the most right. part. Right. And I think, well, you know, one of the things that we didn't address with this is that uh, this whole series, Joe Quesada wrote in honor of his father who had passed away. Yes. And so I think he's writing in a lot of these things that are supposed to be like pieces of him and his family in there. And this is definitely seems like it's part of it, at least. But yeah, it's it. It was almost written as though like this was supposed to be like their introduction and hopefully there would be like a spinoff series of the superhero team that would now be in existence. I don't think it ever happened. Um, yeah. As far as my I, research went, I, I saw that they, they have not been used since. Yeah. It's just it's only been in this story. Right. And, and which is unfortunate because I think it would be really interesting to see that, especially with some of the stuff that they set up. It seems like they definitely set it up so that way they could explain things later on, which they never did. But I, I like the fact that the first time that he ran into the sanitarians, like they just like you said, uh, knocked him out of the sky uh, with some sort of power. They started fighting him and all that. And then the the leader of the group, I forget his his name. He eh, basically Lugua. said like, yes, exactly. He's like, I think we you know got off on the wrong foot. I'm just like, you think like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you knocked him out of the sky. Like, yeah, you, you know, started like, fighting <laughs> him. He's like, okay, hold on. Like, I think you misunderstood what I meant by when I knocked you down, right? Yeah. And, and he kind of does the same thing again. You know, it's just like it's it's like let's let's try to you know cool things off. It's like well stop fighting him every time you get a chance and yeah. do that you know like your your actions are not matching your words right now <laughs> yeah exactly and and i i do agree in the fact that like i think that obviously any character has potential to be great and have great stories yeah. um the only thing uh, i think my main complaint with the santarians is not that i dislike them as characters it's more just like i think as a whole they're the most shoehorned in part of this story like the most like oh i wanted to get that in there but like they really you could have yeah. cut most of them out besides the leader and it would not have mattered. Like that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's like, the thing. Like they didn't really need to have a team to kind of move that story forward. Yeah. So I, yeah. I get what you mean by that. It, it definitely, like I said, it definitely feels like it was supposed to be introduction to them to try to kickstart them later and it seemed like it never took off for whatever reason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and as I, as I was saying, like, you know, it, it, the, the only important one is their leader who goes by the name Elugua. And uh, mm-hmm. he he can his powers aren't like explicitly explained, but it's like he he can use magic and does like mental manipulation stuff. And right. Lugua immediately tries to call a truce with Daredevil, saying that they both have been in like the wrong and they should work together, like against criminals, not against each other. And they're about to shake when the other like dummies uh, start attacking Matt again. Uh, they just kind of go rogue, <laughs> and uh, they yeah. have another yeah they have another big old fight. And, and even though they all have crazy powers, Matt this time around wipes the floor with them, which is pretty cool. But right. like, uh, mm-hmm. but that is until Lugua casts a spell where like it's kind of interesting actually. He casts a spell where uh, none of them can communicate. Yeah. Like so they so they all just kind of fall apart because it's like they just they speak and like it's just gibberish. So it's like uh, that's that's an that's an interesting power to disorient them in that way. And uh, mm. He speaks again with Matt and they they shake on like kind of an uneasy truce at this point. And he has like kind of a proposition where he, he asks Matt to help them clean the city up. But once once again, Matt says he doesn't care about anything but Hell's Kitchen, you know, and Elugua implies that it'd be a shame if the public found out what a liar Matt Murdock is. And Matt smells <laughs> uh, the hand he shook and smiles. So, you know, there's there's a, it's pretty tense truce. But mm-hmm. we cut to 
the flashback of Matt's dad beating up the shopkeep. And Matt in the current day is sitting on a bench across from that alley when Maggie comes to join him for like a little meeting. And Mm -hmm. she asks him what this meeting is about. And he brings up Sean asking if she really loves him, which is like pretty brash on his part. But uh, (laughs) but like (laughs) she she is so offended by Matt's assumptions that she fires him and basically tells him to fuck off. And it's like it's also. Yeah, it's also worth noting during their conversation, uh, she takes a call from her father and it's a very weird, tense conversation from her. And we only hear her end of the side, but she seems scared and like very subservient to him. It's implied that he calls her names because she's like meeting with a man, you know, and stuff. It's it's very mm-hmm. weird and like and, yeah. and alarming. You know, we see a scene from the killer's perspective at this point, looking over supplies like, you know, knives, rope, drugs. And there's a notebook with the name Stanley Pfeiffer. And uh, the figure takes that page and draws eyes over the name and the address. And uh, mm-hmm. we then cut to Nero, um, his oh, assistant. Hold on, hold on. Uh, did, yeah, you notice what, did you notice who was on the other page, though? Oh, God, what is it? I, I didn't write it in the notes, but I remember. <laughs> who it is it? Melvin Potter. A- Melvin Potter, yeah, yeah. Yes, the gladiator who, if, if you watch the Daredevil series, he he made the uh, suit The suits, Daredevil. yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I thought Daredevil. that was like a really fun one, yeah. <laughs> frequent frequent Daredevil kind of uh, frenemy. Uh, he he always uh, goes yeah. through like arcs where it's like he's, um, he's redeeming kill himself. You. Yeah. Wait, no, let's maybe not. Let's be friends. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, he's it's really he's, fun. He's almost like Daredevil's equivalent to like uh, like Rhino for Spider-Man, where it's like sometimes he's trying to do good and like, you know, he's he's but it always ends up slipping back and then like trying again. You know, it's like uh, right. he's he, gl- yeah. I like Gladiator. Gladiator's a cool character, though. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I feel like Gladiator would have wiped the floor with the serial killer, though, if they tried to come and get him. But whatever. Oh, yeah, I know. That's probably why she stopped there. She's like, I know who that guy is. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We did, though. We cut to Nero and uh, his assistant finds him coming out of a secret room that she didn't know existed. And he kind of just shoes her away, saying he needs some fresh air. Uh, We cut to a man in a hotel and his drink is drugged and he is nervously talking about being with the person who gives him the drink. Um, After he sips it, he's immobilized and he's like sluggishly talking, you know. And uh, the hands of the other person then bring up the notebook and cross out the eyes over Stanley Pfeiffer's name. And uh, they then get close and take his eyes with a knife. So, you know, yeah, killer is, uh, is, is baiting all kinds of people. But back with Nero, who has returned home, Matt Murdock confronts him, saying that he knows who and what Nero is. And he asks what Nero's father would say. Nero yells back, saying that Matt doesn't know anything about him, let alone his father. And then we get a flashback. In the same painted style of Matt's memories, but it's Nero's. So instead of like like the yellow and red accents, it's it's kind of like a blue and black thing. It's 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 also right. really cool. <laughs> but uh, it is, yeah, I really like yeah. it. it, and it's good like dualism for a number for I mean you know for a number of reasons in terms of like showing the different kinds of memories for each of those characters. But it's it's a really cool way to be able to kind of show flashback and kind of give that simplistic art of of just using the kind of the monochromatic you know colors of you know different shades of blue to kind of tell the story then it really highlights the colors that aren't blue that makes it pop to kind of draw your attention to what's going on there because that's what happens later on sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but no 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 that's it it, it plays a role into it later yeah (laughs) yeah it's a perfect that's a great analysis of it i mean like and just the fact that like you know artistically too they're just so these sequences are probably the most like riveting things to look at in the book i think you know i mean mm-hmm. we kind of talked about it with the colors like up top when we first got the flashbacks but they're just really cool i really like the style you know it's 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 yeah. really nice uh, but yeah so uh the the flashback that we get of nero's um he recounts the night that his councilman father died and it turns out that nero was actually there he was with like his little gang of neighborhood watch kids 
and they stumble onto this big drug deal from a tip that they got, but they find Nero's father is there. And there's like this big boss man who is present. Is this supposed to be the kingpin? That's what I took away. Like, you <laughs> like, never see his face, but it's clear that he's kind of a bigger stature. And I think you kind of see a dome head. Yeah. And he, he, the he only looks, thing you see of his face is like his teeth and his eyes, but that's about it. So but they never yeah. call him by name, like Kingpin or Fisk or anything like that. And I'm like, right. I'm like, yeah. he would make sense, but like, it's, a, yeah, it's not explicitly said. So I was like, is this Kingpin? Cause that's, that's neat. <laughs> but it, it, that means Nero needs a, a justice, you know, for at least to get one up on the Kingpin at some point in the story. I don't know. Exactly. But maybe after yep. this, we can, we can pitch Marvel, uh, a, a Centarian's <laughs> book, you know, 20 years too late, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, well, Hey, if, if battle chasers is doing it now, like why not? Yeah, this, right? yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's nostalgic at this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, but basically, uh, the, the King, or, you know, the big boss who we presume is the Kingpin tells Nero's mm-hmm. dad that, uh, he knew this neighborhood watch like publicity stunt with his son would be trouble. And uh, he hands him a gun to kill his own son. And mm-hmm. I'm like, this was the moment that kind of made me question. I was like, is this the Kingpin? Cause I don't even know if the Kingpin would do that. <laughs> but it's, it's I feel like sadistic. this is Kingpin pre Vanessa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's a, you know, like it looks like Nero's dad was, you know, basically this implies everything like the Nero's dad was on the take. Uh, his election yeah. was bought by this man and he is indebted to him in like his organized crime. So Nero's dad actually aims the gun at Nero, but refuses to shoot. So he's killed right in front of his son and uh, the criminals leave. Daredevil shows up too late to do anything. Um, he's also in his yellow suit. So it's implied like it's the very early days of Daredevil. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> yeah. like a, and Nero protected his dad's legacy by burning all of this evidence that would condemn him, though. That's why, like, in the documentary we saw, it was like, you know, he's he's like, oh, it's tragedy struck and, like, this great, like, you know, councilman was struck down and, like, you know, nobody right. knows that his dad was on the take and did some bad stuff. And, uh, right. and it's Or why, here- why he was even killed. I mean, they just said he, they saw him killed. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, they, and they, like, I think they said they presumed it was like some gang activity or something like that. Exactly, like, you know, like it was just all that. presumed or inferred and all that. Like, yeah, like no one really knew. Um, yeah, and, and to go back to the artwork in this scene here, talking about when uh, you know, presumably Kingpin gives the dad the gun. Like that's the color contrast that we has that the gun is this dark red, like this opposite color of the blue that the artwork is done. Right, and I love that with the artwork because it really. Like I said, pops out from the rest of the artwork, but it's supposed to be like a symbol of this critical decision that is going to change everybody's lives, basically. And yeah. I, I love how they did that with a lot of the artists. Like they they selectively pick very monochromatic colors, so that way when they introduce a new color, it's supposed to have like that much of an importance in terms of what it's supposed to represent. Yeah, and the red accenting in this sequence actually becomes very important in the Daredevil flashbacks as well later on, which we'll we'll get into. But um, uh, that, yes. that definitely that kicks <laughs> into high gear. But um, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So like we said, Nero, you know, protected his dad's legacy, made sure that you know nobody knew all this stuff, and it's here that we get the reveal that Nero is Elugua from the Santarians. Yes. So um, yes. uh, Matt, Matt, Matt asks how, you know, he got his powers, but Nero tells him basically, he's like, fuck off. I'm not going to tell you that. And like, and, uh, he asks how Matt figured it out. And Matt says it's because he smelled his special cologne on his hand when he shook the hand. That's why he <laughs> smelled his hand after. So uh, now what, they, what's interesting <laughs> about this though, is throughout the whole story, the way they laid things out, they made you as a reader think if Nero was actually the Johnny sockets killer too. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a red herring for that, for sure. There, right. There's quite a few that were getting laid out. 
out here. And uh, yeah, but him, they really put it hard because they are always showing him like looking at the it news was, articles and stuff. And like, and then like, yeah. and, and it you're was like, very oh, juxtaposed against each other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They then uh, Matt and Nero kind of just like threaten each other to watch out or something is going to happen, I guess. I don't know. And Nero has like, <laughs> Nero does have like a good point though, claiming that Daredevil needs to help with the serial killer. And Matt writes it off saying like, if the killer isn't in Hell's Kitchen, he doesn't care. And Nero asks how he knows that the killer hasn't been there you know, casting right. doubt in Matt's mind. And yep. as, as Matt leaves Nero's place, the news anchors go on about how the police have a promising lead on the identity of Johnny sockets. And issue five begins with a really cool sequence showing Nero go through some rituals, like as a young man after his dad had died. And um, this is, this is mm-hmm. implied to be how he got his powers. It's not brought up again or really important to the story, but it's, it's really cool looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's oh, like, yeah. he goes through like this crazy spiritual journey and like, you know, takes this like, you know, I guess like mystically enchanted thing to like make him super powered. And like, it's, it's, it's kind of neat. Yeah. I, I, I looked this up actually, cause I was kind of curious about this. And I guess, um, I don't know if this is an actual thing or this is like kind of the lore to the story, but the, I, if I remember correctly, I think the sanitarian was supposed to, in addition to the, being the name of the superhero group, I think is also the name of a, what's called a, um, oh, what's it called? It's, um, it's this term in religion that's called like um, polyam, not polyamorous, but um, uh, it's it's a bridging of two religions together. Basically, I, I forget the term of it. it, it I, you know, and it's escaping me because I actually have a degree in Catholic studies, and we talked about this kind of thing um, in some of my courses, stuff like that. So I know there's actual term. I can't remember what it is right now, but it's supposed to be a combination of some. I think. Latino, like not cults necessarily, but Latino local religions and spirituality with a blend of Catholicism, something like that. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I think in this story, it's it's supposed to be presumed that they have to make like chicken sacrifices. And then I think he's drinking some sort of enchanted like chicken blood. Yeah. Concoction (laughs) type thing. Like and it looks like the guy like the. It looks like the old man who like finds him too, like does some kind of like blessing thing over it. And like, yes. it like starts to glow and stuff like it's with, a, it's, with a it's cigarette. A whole, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a, the best part of it. Right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> almost, almost has that, you know, the, um, um, psychic kind of feel to it of like, you know, give me 20 bucks. I'll tell you your future type of thing. It's like, I'll give you superpowers while I'm like smoking over here leisurely. Yeah. That's modern folklore <laughs> right there. Yeah. yeah no, it's like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a, like back at uh, Matt and Foggy's office, um, an FBI agent actually shows up to speak with Matt. And long story short, they have a very long, like multi-page conversation, but uh, they they found Matt's address book at a Johnny Sockets murder scene. And mm-hmm. it's the one with Stanley Pfeiffer that we saw. So that book is Matt's address book and, and only Matt's prints were found on the book. So he's right. a prime suspect automatically. Right. However, and, and the book's like this list, this list of clients too. Exactly. Which is why it's like setting him up because all the people who were killed were former clients of Matt Murdock. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yep. and however, though, uh, lucky for Matt, the agent who is there is sympathetic to him because Daredevil saved his daughter years ago. So he called in like uh, a ton of niece, favors. wasn't it? Yeah. I thought it was his daughter. Or was it his was niece? It? I I'm thought it was sure. his niece. Oh no! It could you been. keep I'm going. Sure. I'll, I'll I'll do a double check real quick. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. it was nice, but I could be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so he called in like a ton of favors to get like the address book from evidence and give it to Matt in hopes that his extra senses would lead them to the real killer. I love that cute moment too, where the agent leaves and he is like, "Hey, if you see Daredevil, tell him that little girl he saved is doing good. She wants to be a lawyer now. Go figure." And you're like, "That's it. That's a wholesome <laughs> Daredevil moment. I like that. It is. Yeah, yeah. So. 
kind, yeah, kind of affirming that you know what he's doing ha- is having an impact, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, and and he's a real hometown hero, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. But Zdarsky, uh, sorry to sidetrack, but Zdarsky does that great in that first arc of his run as well too. When uh, the cops are mm-hmm. like, um, you know, after Cole, like they capture Daredevil, and uh, and he's like, we don't perp walk like daredevil you know like we're not gonna take his mask <laughs> off and stuff and it's like yeah it's it's a community i like that <laughs> yeah but yeah so so matt like he smells the address book and you guessed it old spice with chemo so matt then recalls uh, the memory of his father beating the shopkeep or more in particular the owner of the shop which uh matt remembers had a sign now that read Farrell's butcher shop so that's mm-hmm. where Matt knows Sean from. He's the son of the guy his dad beat up all those years ago. And uh, Matt immediately <laughs> calls Maggie upon realizing this, who tries to dismiss him like instantly. He frantically tells her she's in danger around Sean. Sean then actually just takes the phone from her and tells Matt to leave them be and hangs up. And Matt right. has like a driver take him to the feral residence. And we see Foggy alone at the office and he gets a knock on the doors. Matt mm-hmm. enters the home and uh, can tell someone is home. He goes to the kitchen and he finds Sean holding a knife and there's blood splattered on him, like on his shirt and stuff. And uh, Matt demands immediately to know where Maggie is. And Sean rambles about how he's like, I really loved her and all this stuff. And uh, Matt mm-hmm. calls Sean a liar, citing that they had, they, they had known each other. And this angers Sean real bad because uh, he tells Matt to not say his father's name. And he talks mm-hmm. about how great his dad was until Matt's dad essentially broke him. He even tells Matt how his dad actually lost an eye from that beating. Like it was pretty right. gruesome apparently. And like Matt angrily asks where Maggie is again. And Sean says that she is a demanding monster. Like he calls her that. And uh, he then goes on to say how she was obsessed with Matt. She keeps like newspaper articles about him. And uh, Sean then goes on to say how uh, he's like, I did everything for her. And uh, I got, I got right. like, a job I hated to move us away, but that wasn't enough. She like looked down on him. Like he even tried to surprise her by going to night classes to get a new degree in computers, like so that he could, you know, be better for her and stuff. And, uh, but she mm. thought that he was cheating. That's what he'd yeah. been doing the whole time. And, uh, and he then goes on to say how he knows she's having an affair with Matt. So there's like <laughs> all these like false infidelity lines that people that they believe in. I know. And, uh, and, and Matt, really they have trust issues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually yeah. breaking them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty rough. But like Matt, Matt obviously denies this and offers to help Sean, but Sean won't take any of it. He starts coughing the more that he talks and he tells Matt that he really loved Maggie again. And Matt asks one final time where Maggie is. And Sean says that she was going to go see him. And Matt is awestruck. He asks what Sean means. And Sean stands up saying, you, she went to, oh my God, you really don't know. Then Sean falls onto the table. A giant stab wound is revealed in his back and he falls dying right there. <laughs> which, and- <laughs> which by the way, like I love the story up to this point. Cause I'm like, I don't know anyone that would practically speaking been stabbed in the back and then we just have a conversation with this guy. <laughs> like yeah, nothing pretty- is, is wrong. Like the drinking wine and, you know, holding this knife, whatever. Oh, by the way, she stabbed me, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, not saying any of those things. So that, that's the part is like, okay, that's kind of an interesting, but like practically speaking, no one in their right mind would ever, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> do that sort of thing yeah exactly yeah it's like he's just straight up dead and uh, back at yeah the, back at the uh law offices i knew it was uh, forgetting something <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> like foggy 
uh, back at the law offices has let Maggie in. Uh, and she kind of like flirts with him a bit and slips the mm-hmm. drugs into his coffee. Matt frantically tries to call Foggy from the road, but he has no luck. And uh, he has the driver pull over and starts daredeviling on the rooftops to get there faster. Uh, the issue then ends with Maggie taping a drugged up Foggy's mouth shut. And she says she's doing this because even though he can't talk because of the drugs, she doesn't want to hear the inevitable screams when she takes his eyes. So Maggie right. is the killer and she wears a wig. Weird addition to that plot reveal. But yeah, she's bald. So it was like, OK, yeah. well, <laughs> because of the chemo, like it makes sense, right? It does. It does. Yeah, it was yeah. just like it, they treated it like it was like some like crazy reveal. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Like because she's just like taking it off all dramatic and you're like, oh, OK, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think it's supposed to be like it, it's it, I mean, it's supposed to be like a literal metaphor in terms of that's the reveal. And like her taking her hair off is like a physical reveal type of thing that's supposed to, you know, mimic that as well, too. So, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. And so so the final issue begins and we see Matt recapping all of the revelations as he rushes to save his best friend, Foggy, from a serial killer. And uh, I did put in here that I wanted to bring up that uh, the depiction we get of the blind man that Matt saved is slightly different every time. I noticed if you flip through all of them, mm-hmm. something on the man is usually accented in red, but it changes like right. some. Sometimes it's his sleeve. Sometimes it's his shirt. And in this instance, at the beginning of the issue, it's his tie. Just something like, you know, like we said, artistic to think about, at least Uh, back at the law office. Maggie explains to a paralyzed foggy that it was supposed to be Matt here, not him. And when Matt rushes Mm -hmm. through the door, he uh, tells her to put the knife down so they can talk this through. She goes on to tell Matt to cut the bullshit, saying that, you know, she knows who he is and she has simply been trying to get his attention with all of this. And we see how right before the first scene with her in the book, uh, when they're meeting in the law office for the first time, she stole Matt's address book then. And when they came Mm -hmm. in and saw her like staring at the photo, like on the desk, she just kind of had it like, you know, under her hand. And uh, she also says that she purposefully gave Sean the wrong address at at that day so that he'd be flustered when he got there, kind of casting doubt on like their relationship. And Matt is essentially the reader at this point. And he asks, but why, though? And uh, her her explanation goes on as such. Um, Two years ago, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. I was numb. Sean was devastated. He wanted kids. That's when I saw it like a message from God. Matt Murdock was daredevil. It finally made sense to me. You had set all these things in motion. You'd been the cause of all this. If not for you, I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't have gotten cancer. And he, he never would have touched me. And Matt is rightfully confused. And she goes on to say that she was only a little girl, but she quickly switches to Sean and how... Like she believed he was having an affair. That was a real thing. She really thought that she was having he was having an affair. And uh, it all just made her want to make Matt like pay and suffer. And man, if Mm. only Sean was honest with her about night school, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like, that's the thing. It's like all this unnecessary murders, you know, just because someone went to night school. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Like it's so so she started the killings that would inevitably lead back to Matt all to hurt his reputation. Um, She then explains how the black eyes and bruises that she had were from her victims fighting back, not Sean actually abusing her or anything. Like Sean seemed Mm -hmm. like, you know, he seemed, you know, not not great at at honesty, but he wasn't a uh, an abuser. It seemed (laughs) at least, Uh, but uh, she, she goes on to say that uh, when they lock her up, it won't matter because by then Matt's reputation will be ruined. And she plans to write like a tell all while in jail, explaining how it's all Matt's fault. And uh, some FBI cars at this point pull up, And Matt has had enough and he yells, what's my fault? Stop talking in riddles. And she (laughs) says he'll have to wait until the book comes out. The FBI, they break in, tell everybody to put their hands up. 
one of the agents points his gun at Maggie, telling her to put the knife down, and she stands up and drops it while talking like she's like all cocky and stuff, like, oh, I'm going to jail, I'm going to do this, and my plan worked. And uh, But the knife that she drops, it lands on like this glass table, which cracks it, startling everybody. So the officer just fires, blasting a straight up hole through Maggie. And like right. Maggie falls against the wall. Which is a she, pretty big hole for, for that big. kind of gun. Yeah. I'm like, what kind of gun did he have? Jesus. A Desert Eagle or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It, it was it was like it looked like a shotgun wound. Yeah. I was just like, no way would it have been like that at all. But that bad. I know, right. Yeah. It's like yeah. Jesus. <laughs> crazy. But like so so she she's straight up dying against the wall. And Matt checks on Foggy and Maggie tells Matt to come close. And she then whispers something in his ear and he yells calling her a liar and foggy asks what she said and matt drops to his knees only uttering the word father and i wanted Mm -hmm. to point out that with maggie's last words they do that thing where they make the text so small it seems illegible but in this case you can actually like read it or at least the first part of whatever she told him i presume that she told him more you know but anyway a little time has passed and like the feds like closed the case. They're saying it was a murder of like suppressed passion and unrequited love. And Matt goes <laughs> like he he is basically like the beginning of the story when he's like hopping around rooftops. Um, he's thinking about this and uh, he's thinking mostly about how like the papers will sensationalize the story and they'll get it wrong and they'll like make it a love story or whatever. And he even he goes by a crime scene at some point, discovers that the centurions already have it under control. And he and Nero have a little like head nod of understanding moment there for a second. That's the last time we see him in the book. And right. uh, the, the final scene of the book shows us Daredevil uh, go to a seedy apartment building. He knocks on the door, enters a dark apartment, and an old man in a wheelchair answers him. Or he doesn't answer the door, but he's just sitting there. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and he right. tells him that uh, if he's here to steal the TV, that he's too late. And Matt tells him that he's not here to steal. And the old man tells him to keep him company then. And he offers Matt a drink, which Matt refuses. The old man goes on to say, good for you. Damn stuff never did me any favors. Had diabetes most of my life. Drake until the doc said my legs had to go. Not like they didn't warn me. Even drank myself blind. So what's your name, boy? What can I do you for? And Matt instead says Maggie's name. And the man instantly becomes aggressive and he calls her a tramp and asks what she has done now because Maggie is his daughter. And Matt then tells him that she's dead and the man's demeanor changes. Uh, he, he he's clearly starting to feel some kind of remorse. And uh, he asked how it happened. And Matt responds, what happened? What happened is that her child molesting father should have died a long time ago. And the man gets mm-hmm. defensive now asking who the hell this guy is to come into his home and judge him. And Matt responds by saying, who the hell am I? My name is Matt Murdoch. And the man is shocked. We then jump to the flashback of Matt saving the old man that resulted in his powers and blindness. And it's this man, Maggie's yes. father. Uh, yep. That's the big old retcon reveal in this. Uh, yeah, not, also, nice touch that instead of the flailing tie Matt previously remembered, it's not a tie. It's a flask falling out of his coat and it's right. accented red. And yep. so, yeah, the, the big retcon reveal that this book does. Um, This man, this hit me pretty hard. Like I, I did not see this coming when I read it. And it also yeah. got me thinking like, <laughs> God, at, at this point, like just looking at the history of Daredevil comics, I feel like every nook and cranny of Daredevil's past <laughs> has been filled in with tragedy at this point. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. That's why yeah. I like about this story, though, is that it's something that we've never had any sort of information about the man he saved. Right. And so yeah. it's interesting to see. And this is why it kind of works really well with limited series is because like it doesn't need to be like really extrapolated in any other series in the future. It's just kind of like a self-contained thing. But it was just a really smart 
interesting way of of Joe Quesada adding on to the story that doesn't really change what's in canon, but just kind of adds like a little detail in that, you know. But yeah, it's just like uh, like this is one of the reasons why I really love this book is that it's one of the few series where I was like, oh my, like one, I was really shocked, didn't see it coming, and then made you go back and actually look at some stuff, right? Like, um, for example, when Maggie was saying that she took the uh, journal from his or the address book from his desk and like hit it behind the picture when she was holding it if you go back to issue one you see a little bit of a red behind that picture frame uh-huh. and he drew that in there you know and and the uh the flashbacks of him with um thinking about his father beating up the butcher shot uh the butcher the first images we see is just cropped to where it's just uh his dad and the butcher but then every issue when you see that it kind of pans out a little bit more and more and you see until the you get sign. to the yeah, and even in issue four, you see part of the of the sign, but it's kind of blurred because again, it's supposed to mimicking a memory type of thing, and so uh-huh. it's just really cool how they really planned this out on the long term, and the dividends really much paid off by it by the end because it's just like a movie. Like if you if some sort of reveal happened and it makes you want to go back and see like did they have those details earlier and I missed it like. You know, that's that's what you want as a creator is to have people kind of engage and go back into the story and kind of look at those things again. And so that's one of the reasons why I love that is just these, you know, this reveal of like how he wrote the story that you didn't see coming. It just kind of blew my mind when I read that whole thing. Yeah, I I just I thought it was so interesting because it's like that seems like such an obvious well to go into. Like, who was the man that he saved? Like, you know, and, yeah. and it, it was kind of shocking to me that no one had ever really done anything with that until 2004 2006 yeah. you know it's like that's just it's just weird it's like i i don't know but like i really kind of dig that and like even though it is like just adding a pile of more depressive stuff on daredevil's <laughs> origin like i yeah. i mean i i like it i think it's i think it's a really neat thing to do a story about that and uh yeah i mean like at, at this point too you know with that reveal the man drops his bottle of alcohol and he starts to pray and he says uh you know father forgive me over and over again and uh, the scene transitions back into matt's memory of catching his dad beating up the butcher and uh but we mm. see uh more of the memory this time and after matt sees this he runs away with tears in his eyes and eventually though his dad actually i guess like caught up with him and he has like this remorseful look on his face. Uh, he puts his hand on young Matt's shoulder and on the last page they embrace. And I want to punctuate before we end the story with what Matt's narration from the modern day says over this scene. He says, Battle and Jack Murdoch was my father. Battle and Jack wasn't perfect. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Battle and Jack did some terrible things for some very bad men. But when push came to shove, Jack gave the middle finger to those bad men. Perhaps he'd grown sick of the scum he had kowtowed to. Or perhaps he just couldn't stand the sight of his own reflection in his little boy's eyes. But one day, Jack Murdoch dug deep and found that part of himself that used to be noble and good and uncompromised by the world. He found his soul. And with that, he saved mine. And we flip the page, and the the last actual thing we see is a a dedication from Casada to his dad that says, uh, For Pops, I miss you every day. And Mm -hmm. that is the end of Daredevil Father. Mm -hmm. So we can get into some overall thoughts here, Sean. I think that one of the first (laughs) things that I thought to ask you um i'm curious since you picked this book um uh what element of this story kind of sticks out to you the most like what's the main thing you take away from this book or when you think of it you know oh yeah so i mean there's quite a bit i i think um you know just to kind of focus on a few is you know what we talked about before 
the some of the artwork in terms of the memories was just really fantastic. How I was talking about before, Joe planned for the long run in terms of planting some of those seeds and hints of what was going to happen in the story. So when it got to the reveal, like one, I don't think anyone really knew what the reveal was going to be because it's almost like when there was a reveal, there was a new one of like, you, it's not even what you thought from that before. I think it was kind of like, you know, three or four of them, right? And so it was really cool to kind of see that story taken that direction that I wasn't expecting at all whatsoever. So I thought the story writing was just phenomenal in that regard. Um, but what I love about this is that this was really told in the mindset of at the beginning, Matt explaining what his relationship was like with his father and what his father was like. And then when it came to the end of it, you see that, you know, his father, he still sees him as a hero because of the choice he eventually made to correct himself and to, you know, do the right thing. That's again, juxtaposed against the man he saved and end up being one of the like worst people in the world before what he did and everything. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like one of those nice juxtaposition of, of how actions as a father really goes above and beyond in that People make mistakes all the time, but it's, you know, trying to correct those mistakes and trying to move forward with doing the right thing is what matters. And that's why he said that, you know, his soul was saved because he his dad eventually, you know, made the right decision and kind of turned around and and basically, you know, tried to do the right thing for his son. Whereas, you know, the the man that he saved in the street that one day did not do that at all. I mean, he was a jackass all the way to the very end, you know, and so, yeah. Yeah, the, the fact true. that this was a this was a dedication to his father and that it was very much a father son kind of story. I just love this from being a father myself because I, you know I, you probably resonate with this as well too. Like as fathers, we you know always do the right thing, right? Like we, there are times where I wish I hadn't you know done that um, you know with with my kid in terms of like losing my temper or getting upset or or whatnot, you know. And then like as as parents, you just feel so terrible after the fact that you're just like I, I don't want you know, my child going away feeling like that. My biggest criticism, I'll get that out of the way first here, but I'm um, in just some overalls here. But uh, this is sort of an interesting talking point because on a recent episode I did, I, I spoke briefly about how Alan Moore as a writer is so great at taking like these multiple ideas and themes and like mm -hmm. concepts to use in a story, but he makes them all work really flawlessly. And um, you feel like you can dissect his stories on like multiple levels and layers and it's super satisfying like in every way and uh, mm -hmm. this story also has a lot going on in it and a lot to say but i'm not sure that it integrates it like it, it integrates all of them so well i guess is the best way i could put that like um i i do like how it does the uh, like we were saying the the relationships of of several characters and how uh, their fathers affected them or their relationship with their fathers. But I feel like we could have dropped one or two of those um, uh, things and 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 it would have been a bit more you know punchy and streamlined a bit. Um, uh, like mm -hmm. the Centarians and Nero are just a little too much for me <laughs> at points. Right. Nero obviously like with the flashback sequences, I, I really I really dig that being an addition, and I can't really imagine the story without that now. But like the right. Centarians and everything, like it's just a little much. Um, but I will say. I uh, I really enjoyed the uh, murder mystery angle of this story. Um, it has mm -hmm. like a fun, it's a fun twist and it's a good dilemma to put Matt through, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, really puts his uh, integrity kind of in focus there of like, oh, are you going to actually do something? You know, <laughs> like, right. uh, like, you know, and uh, I, I also set it up top, but uh, I dig how this book uh, forces Matt to look at his dad from kind of all angles. Like, mm. I, I think 
I think we all go through this in life where we reach a point where we finally see like our parents as humans. And Mm -hmm. I feel like Matt kind of goes through that in this. Like if you compare his monologue from the very beginning of the book to the very last one, it's like, there's some, there's some growth there. Like, you know, it's like of how he just perceives his father. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Um, uh, other than that, um, I got to say, I know we, we already talked about Casada in the, in the art department quite a bit. I don't know. Did you have anything <laughs> else you wanted to uh, add on that um, with, with him in particular? Because um, I did have something to say about Danny Mickey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, the biggest thing with the art is, is what I already said with um, how at first it didn't really seem it, like it seemed kind of like odd in terms of dis, um, proportions and, and not as consistent. But when you kind of think of it as every panel is an opportunity to draw you know, to capture that moment as opposed to to capture this, you know, story frame by frame and all that, I think was good. It's just, it's definitely one that kind of struck me as odd at first. Like, I'm not a fan of that kind of artwork where it's trying to be more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Trying to be more, ab- it's not really abstract in the sense. Stylized. Yeah, not even stylized. It's more of like, it, it's um, trying to be a little bit more interpretive i guess as opposed to you know trying to create a style that seems to be more realistic and anything like that but it, it, yeah. it ended up working for this what i what i thought was really funny one thing i will add on to it is with the cover art i think it was issue number five i gotta say um it was issue number five was like pretty much a headshot frame like you know from the chest up of daredevil with his red suit and everything and for whatever reason it really reminded me of the uh 90s show the flash in terms of the uh which which show the flash Oh yeah, yeah. It does yeah. look like that. It looks like that suit kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's super it, I bulky. mean, it looks like you know John Wesley Snipes. That's his name, right? All right, John. Yeah, John Wesley. John Wesley Ship. Ship. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. I, I think Wesley Snipes. It, it, that's the yeah. <laughs> that's another actor. Yeah, John Wesley <laughs> Ships. Um, you know, it looks a lot like him from when he was the Flash back in the nineties and everything. So I remember when I saw that cover, I was like, oh, that looks really familiar, and that's exactly what my mind went to. But um, the cover art I thought was actually really interesting. Like I said, that's what captured my attention to get the book to begin with. But yeah, they're very eye catching covers for sure. That that one yeah. in particular you pointed out is the one that I kind of think of when I see it too because <laughs> yeah. it's kind of it's like eerie he's like smiling and like with blood like, coming down of his corner of his mouth and stuff like that yeah it's, it's yeah. not even like smiling it's more like this weird weird like smiling through pain type of thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's 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 neat though it's a it's a really striking image and like all, is, all the covers are sure. i think yeah yeah um, but yeah i i'll say just to, to tack onto the art because we we did talk about casada i mean like obviously this is like his baby and he did the majority of the work but like um mm-hmm. i will say um uh, danny mickey is a uh is the inker on this book and um, i've had a newfound interest in danny mickey after uh, a kind of a recent development for me where um, uh, i've seen his work on the more recent uh, detective comics uh backups um oh, he yeah. was drawing yeah he was doing the uh, Cy Spurrier written uh backups like with Jim Gordon in that first arc when uh, Ram V took over the title and uh, mm-hmm. that's just that's just really good stuff i just i really dig that it works so well in like kind of like a gritty street like you know cop superhero type book like it just right. It works really well. And the, the paints from Eisenhoff are uh, fantastic. We mentioned that many times. Um, uh, I, I never tire of seeing those full page like sequences and, and we see them a lot in the story and uh, mm-hmm. they really they really never get old. Like, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, they're just great. Yeah. I don't know. Anything else that uh, you'd like to add on to this one, Sean? No, I, I think we 
I think I at least I captured everything that I really liked about the comic in terms of the artwork, the story, and everything like that. It's like I said, it's, it's one of my favorite series about Daredevil that's out there that I really enjoy, and and I think it's you know especially as a limited series and all that. Like if you're wanting, if you're somebody that's like a casual fan of Daredevil and you want to read something that is really accessible because it's kind of a short thing and you don't need to know a whole lot of backstory other than just kind of like the general, you know, idea Like you know, if you've ever watched the movie or the TV show and kind of know that it's, you know, it was him and his dad and his dad was a boxer and, and did some bad things. It was killed for stuff like that. That's all we really need to know. I think for this story, this is yeah. a really good one just because it's, it gives you something that you can really read that really encapsulates you. And um, it's something that's really enjoyable. Just like you said, it's a, it's a murder mystery type of thing that has all these twists and turns that you weren't really expecting throughout the story basically you know this is just like i wasn't expecting for it to have that many i wasn't expecting for it to have any at all but just for that to keep you know building and building was just like so good and so it's one of my favorite runs of daredevil for that reason yeah i know i completely agree um and and i think that uh, just to piggyback on what you're saying about the uh it being like new reader friendly like we talked Mm -hmm. about like a couple of the things that were like continuity based of what was going on at the time like you know reverend seemed like that daredevil's you know identity was outed but like it's all like it's some of those things that are mentioned it's like they they're written in a way where it's like you you just go with it you know like during the story like it doesn't inhibit your enjoyment of it at all like and if you're really questioning then it'll just point you towards the bendis run which is one of the best daredevil runs of all time so (laughs) you'll have a treat of reading that as well too but um uh yeah, so I guess uh, we'll ask the final question then, Sean. I'm a Daredevil father. I think it's pretty obvious from that, but uh, is it a pull or a drop for you? Well, yeah, for me, it's definitely a pull. It's yeah. it, Like I said, it's it's definitely one of the top uh, series out there for me, at least. Um, and just like what we said, this is a good one for people who want to get into reading something that's Daredevil that you don't have to have a whole lot of you know background knowledge on the character or anything to kind of follow. Uh, you know, unlike, you know, if you try to pick up an X-Men comic nowadays, it's, you have to feel like you have to read <laughs> the last 50 years of comics to kind of feel like you even have an iota of knowing what's going on but yeah. um yeah i mean the, the artwork is good the story is good i think this is a great um example of how to be able to add on to canon without really complicating anything that just kind of you know adds like a, it's almost like icing on the cake type of thing you know it's like it's not detracting it's not changing anything but it's adding something that is really small but gives like just a really cool angle of the story but again it's like it never has to be really brought up again in the future like it doesn't really become problematic in the future either you know yeah exactly and it, if anything it just it helps enhance like the themes that the story is trying to get across like right. of you know uh, about like you know our, our relationship with our parents and in particularly dads obviously but mm-hmm. um but yeah it's a, it's just good so i guess i should have asked that question for me this time because i was the first time reader but i would pull it as well um uh, I, guess, <laughs> I guess you know i mean uh yeah i i think it the good um stuff in this like far outweighs like my minor criticisms really and um, i really right. commend casada for wanting to go kind of big with this one like you know with the revelatory oh, yeah. stuff like uh it, it mostly all succeeds for me and uh and i and mm. i i definitely dig it i think this might be like my favorite thing i've read of his that he wrote like yeah. you know like just because i've never yes. like 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 i said i mean i i don't i would never call casada a bad writer i just mean you know 
I think his strength lies a lot more in art, you know, and he's done a lot mm-hmm. more just straight up art, like with a writer attached. So, I mean, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I dig how this story was structured and it was just a, it was just a good time. And I thank you for picking it, man. And exposing it to me. Yeah. I, I would definitely love to like try to get an interview with Joe sometime on the show and like talk to him about this. Cause I think there would be really, I, I don't, I'm sure somebody probably interview him about this story, but I think it'd be really interesting to see like more of the behind the scenes and the backstory of going into writing this one. And yeah. The, and, and the thing, Things that really influence it, given that he had just lost his dad um, and and all this and like how this was a tribute to his father and and all that. I would love to hear that story as a father myself of how that all kind of played into him writing and drawing the story. I think it's just really it's one of those stories. It's really fascinating as a story in itself, but it's really fascinating to think about the things that probably went into it as well, too, in terms of, you know, like I said, the behind the scenes stuff, I think would be really cool to learn more about. Yeah, I mean it's 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 kind of similar in that way to um uh like we did not too long ago the uh, death of Captain Marvel on here and with uh, yeah. Jim Starlin kind of doing that book out of a uh, necessity to kind of grieve for losing his father to cancer you know so I mean like it's right. uh it, those those stories are always very interesting and I would be I would love to hear like you talk to Casada about this because like trust me like I typically do pretty hard research for these books that we do on this show <laughs> yeah. I found very little interviews. I know this like, you know, it it was like, (laughs) like he didn't he didn't really talk about this book beyond like just the fact that it was coming out like, you know, (laughs) like it wasn't there wasn't like much in terms of even like a press release, which is that's that's one aspect that we didn't get into too much. But I think it's kind of wild that this book is so like under the radar, like in the way that like, yeah, it was he was in charge and two, like <laughs> no one ever references it. Like it's kind of, it, it's just kind of yeah. weird, you know, it's like, you'd think it would be like with the, with the way it's remembered or referenced nowadays, which is nothing. You'd think it'd be like a not great story, but it's pretty great. Yeah. So it's like, it's weird. <laughs> like, yes. But, well, and I think like, just, you said, it's a six issue series, but it took it like two years for it to come out too, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it's, the combination of those things of, of what was happening with him personally, as well as at Marvel and stuff like that. I'm sure it's just one of those things where, because it was such a shorter series, but took so long, it it was one of those things people were like, Oh, I forgot that was even coming out. But it's my guess. I don't even know for sure. Yeah, but Like it didn't, it didn't I, have the, it didn't have the impact because it was just so late. Like, you know, that type of thing. Right. Like, yeah, that, that I mean, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, well, anyway, I'm, uh, I guess we, we'll wrap her on up here. There you have it, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please check out our patreon at patreon.com slash none of my friends like comics we do uh bonus podcasts movie commentaries and uh, you get this show early for as little as a dollar a month you can follow the show on twitter at no comic friends for updates email the show at <laughs> none of my friends like comics at gmail.com and if you mark it okay to air we'll read it on the air and respond if you want to hear myself and some friends talk about music check out our other podcast now listen to this and if you like the show, please tell your friends and family who might be interested to give us a listen. We are on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, a bunch of other places. And Sean, tell us where the listeners can find you in the caption life. Yeah, if you go to our website, uh, thecaptionlife.com, and it's spelled T-H-E-C-A-P-T-I-O-N-E-D-L-I-F-E.com, um, it'll give you a list of where you can find our podcast at, which is on all the podcast players. And we're also on YouTube. It gives you a list of all of our episodes, all of our social media. Um, I also do reviews of comics and TVs and stuff like that. Um, a lot of them are for Comic Watch. I put them on our website as well, too. So we have a blog site that has all those written reviews if you're interested in those as well. So everything you need to know and uh, follow us on social media stuff like that if you go to our website it'll give you a list of all those things 
Awesome. Well, thank you once again for coming on, Sean. It was a pleasure to have you. And uh, thanks again to you for listening. And uh, we will see you on the next page, everybody. (laughs) 